Welcome back to another episode of After Further Review. After a lovely holiday show on Monday, this is episode 23. I'm Mark Ferrer. John Pelkey will join us shortly. Jeff Taylor is our producer and the man on the board. It is uh, an interesting time these days, boys, because things are starting to open up. And we're not talking just, uh, you know, the local bar or the local restaurant or perhaps the beaches we're now talking theme parks. We're talking the biggies. We're talking the biggies. So it's a. it feels like we're traversing into a different realm these days. And I'm not sure how you folks think about that. I, I am somewhat hesitant. I'm sort of going to be... <laughs> I'm going to be sort of the last in line to do any of these things, John. As you know, I tend to be uh, more of a scaredy cat. I tend... Now, I do go between being paranoid, totally paranoid, to totally cavalier. It's like I do not have a middle ground in there, John, as you know. You, you know me. So, oddly, very- you, you're, you're somewhat unmoored and without really any sort of uh, hard and fast uh, – what am I looking for here? Uh, you, you, you don't really have any convictions either way. You just sort of float with the wind and – don't really have a will of my own. That's yeah. very true. Okay. Uh, there's not a lot of ground underneath my feet. That's all. And let's be true. honest, when you're when some of your will does seep in, uh, we all understand why it's probably best that it's not there from time well, to time. Well, you know, I've learned over the years. It's like, yeah. let's stay away from that will. And uh-huh. um, <laughs> and uh, so you know, in terms of the COVID, I've I I, I traverse from you know being. Uh, a little cavalier about it. I was a little cavalier in mid-March, I think, until, you know, I think I was cavalier until March 13th, and then I was highly paranoid until perhaps May 4th. And then there's been probably two or three days in May that I was a little cavalier, and and there's paranoia. But both are starting to ebb a little bit, John. And so I, I tend to think that maybe it's it, it not only are we going into a new era of this thing, but I think also... Everyone, me included, are getting used to a new normal. I'm used to wiping everything down. I'm used to wearing a mask. I'm used to washing my hands 12 times a day. I'm used to social distancing. It's just like, okay, this is how we live these days. So maybe it's a combination of those things. How about you? What's your mental vibe and emotional vibe as you see see current events unfolding before you? Well, I'm not sure what the wisdom is in any of the openings or not openings to that point. I mean, I, I think there's just so much misinformation out there, partial information. I think a lot of that, I don't think all of that is done in bad faith. I think it's just, we're learning more and more as we go along. They recently said, well, perhaps the virus doesn't live as long on surfaces as we previously thought, but maybe it'll travel further in the air and those sort of things. But I'm, I'm, I'm I was never really terribly, terribly paranoid um, though I did follow, you know, the the guidelines. I do wear a mask and mask, and I didn't really go out among folks other than very quick shopping trips for a while. But since then, I did go out to a local pub, uh, and uh, they have an outdoor area. The seating was very separated, and met up with some friends, and we stayed more than six feet apart and wore masks when we weren't uh, drinking our adult beverages and stuff. And and that was. Uh, positive experience. And I, I, I think I'm going to continue with those sort of experiences. I'm not comfortable yet. Uh, my wife and I are talking about maybe getting some food from a restaurant tonight. We haven't done that. We tried to do that maybe once a week or so. Um, 
And uh, but some of the restaurants now have limited seating inside We're neither of us are ready for that. I know some other people are Um, went to Lowe's yesterday doing a home improvement thing, putting a sliding barn door on our uh, on our guest, our master bathroom. So got a big project to do. Went out to Lowe's most I'd say, you know, 75 percent of people wearing masks, social distancing. So I'm kind of in that part where I think, you know, realizing that things can't just stay completely airtight no matter what we do. Um, summertime seems like a pretty good time to get out there, practice some social distancing stuff, but also get out a bit, spend a little money in the community because we're not sure what will happen in the fall. Um, so, yeah, I'm just, I guess you, you, you would be – uh, lying, I think if you live in Central Florida and all of a sudden it's the day that Disney World announced it's going to open again, being that this is, if not a one company town, it's kind of a one industry town, essentially. Um, so that I think that bodes well for us here in Central Florida. We'll see where it goes. Disney's going to hold off for five, six weeks longer than Universal and SeaWorld to, before they open things up. Um, I, I, I sort of understand why. They've been through this before. With their uh, with their Asian properties, yeah, with uh, with Shanghai, Shanghai and the like, and they've uh, you know they were closed for about 110 days or 105 days in Shanghai, and it's going to be close to that for Disney, you know, for uh, Walt Disney World and for Animal Kingdom and the studios and Epcot and all that. So, and they're all to your point, they're going to have about five weeks of data from SeaWorld and Universal to see how they handle it and what the rates, what the daily infection rates are as a result. Yeah. Blah de blah. And um, so that's going to be interesting. But all the numbers, Jeff, all the numbers are trending down, certainly nationally in New York. The numbers couldn't be better. Uh, You know, Cuomo is going to be uh, second guest for this. But he took the advice of all of the worst case scenario prognosticators. And I think it probably in the end did them well outside of the unfortunate decision to send COVID positive patients back to the assisted living facilities because they thought they wouldn't have hospital beds and they turned out they would have. And of course that blew up in their face and they've reversed that. But outside of that, you know, you know, that whole, whole thing about hoping for the best, preparing for the worst seems to have worked in New York. Those numbers are terrific. What's your overall mental and emotional feeling these days, my friend? I agree. I mean, everybody was put in a tough position here, not knowing what was going on, having to make big decisions. And even a mistake like that, he made it thinking that he would be putting those older people in a worse position by sending them to a hospital where there would be all of these other people that were ill, hoping that he could send them to a a more uh, controlled environment. So I think we're going to second guess everybody that made any decisions during this. So I think, I think that, uh, that, that it's time to, to start considering opening back up. The numbers are seeming to go down, and with the summer coming and the, the heat, although I've seen reports that that doesn't affect it, but the CDC has already come out again and said, wait a minute, we might have been wrong. Thing, this thing seems to be living on surfaces again. So I don't know. I don't, I don't think we've got enough time to, to have perfect science on any of this. So let's. Yeah, we never will. No, uh, perfect science. No. Well, and, 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 and again, yeah, we still don't have a vaccine for HIV, for crying out loud. Nope. And uh, you, to your point, when, when there's a now, granted, the pressure, the time pressure imposed on scientists to find a vaccine and to get to the bottom of this, I think, adds to the effectiveness. Um, 
in terms of in, in terms of getting additional science and additional forward progress, you know, you're right. Six, eight months is not enough time to study anything. No, so I, for, for us to expect that anyone had all the answers at any at any particular given time, uh, you know, I, I think is silly. And I think we need to, you know, take a chill pill, if you will, and, and not uh, not second guess the world over this. Although evidently if, if a crime happened 21 years ago, evidently, you can second guess that forever and tweet about it forever and accuse the uh, person you think is involved Are you talking Uh, about Justice Kavanaugh on this show? I thought we weren't going to do politics. (laughs) No, we're going to do politics. I'm talking about the Joe Scarborough. uh, I know that. I know what you're talking about. The president just inexplicable. I mean, it's. I'm sorry. It's. It. It really does feel like a sketch from the Dana Carvey show. Some. Sometimes his tweets literally feel like they're coming from the mind of Robert Spiegel. I still also think that he's doing the old shell game. He is from New York, and it was big there. He's like, look over here, and then over here, three card. Yeah, he's that's really, really great at that. And, and we won't get too deep into the, the, the Trump thing here, but he's really, really great at that. But that's a time honored political thing where you do where, you know, people look over here because what I'm doing over here uh, on the other side is so much worse. And I can't let you see that. So, yeah, he's just very good at it because he's a New Yorker and it's three card Monty. I'm watching Hangar One right now, which is the release of all of the documents on UFOs through the past like 65 years. And uh, so I'll believe anything at this point. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I, I heard I that's thought amazing. This conspiracy theory, these conspiracy theories are starting to kind of like shape into maybe they don't tell They're us true. everything. Yeah. And you used to be not a conspiracy guy back in the day, and no. now suddenly you are. No, not at all. I, I used to kind of laugh them off, but now with the UFO thing, I'm like, man, I really, I, I, there are some people I need to call and apologize to. Mark's still a second shooter guy, so I know Mark's still a second shooter. Yeah, you know, He's I'm, a grassy knoll guy. I'm sorry, the magic bullet will never yes, hold up. No, regardless that's ridiculous. Of whatever I'm science you, you give, whatever trajectories you the give, physics, the physics work. Well, the physics don't work with the magic bullet, though, Johnny. You, you don't go through two people and and a uh, and a mainly seat soft in a tissue, car. mainly it's soft a, tissue. Only caught one rib coming into, and then the thigh. I don't. Yeah, I think went through a seat. Went through a seat as well. Yeah, but you know, it's a, those Ford seats. I had a couple of escapes. <laughs> There'd be some. It would be out of, pristine. Uh, made out of toilet paper and uh, spit. So it, yeah, it would not be pristine. And the fact that J.D. Tippett and and uh, I almost said Joe Rudy, Jack Rudy, although Joe Rudy, where I was, think was Joe Rudy cousin. when this happened? <laughs> Was he playing in the minors in Dallas? It's certainly a possibility. <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah, the um, the Kansas City A's uh, minor league team out of Dallas uh, affiliate. This just in: Apple Podcast suspends after further review for baselessly commenting on the guilt or innocence of Joe Rudy in the Kennedy assassination. The when A's Rudy, might be Rudy, Joe Rudy, seventy nine, said the hell who are these guys. <laughs> I was playing in Iowa in AAA at that point. Sure All you right. were. Sure you were. On further investigation, paperwork shows that Rudy was in Dallas on the weekend. Exactly. On November 22nd, and his whereabouts cannot be confirmed. And his uncle was indeed Jack, who was a friend of J.D. Tippett. Okay, progressive trivia. I spelled the same. We, we did get a comment the other day, by the way, of a uh, listener who said, what show goes from Fagan, the character in Oliver, to H.R. Haldeman in 30 seconds. No other show does that. 
John then commented, yes, the eight people that listen will, this will be their favorite show. This will be their favorite podcast for the eight people out there. The Cornell history professors I used to mention back in the day, John. We can't, we'll never get elected to office, but the enthusiasm of our supporters is through the freaking roof comparatively. True. That's what it's all about. All right. Let's do some progressive trivia. We're looking for an NFL player, past or present. This guy played with Ryan Fitzpatrick. Not much of a clue, because how many teams has Ryan Fitzpatrick played with, John? 44. <laughs> and played Case Keenum. Bulldogs, and at one point he was with the uh, Albany Redlegs of the Continental Football League. He played with right, uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick and Case Keenum. How many uh, teams of Case Keenum has, Ke- has Case Keenum played for? 41. <laughs> Hot on Fitz's tail. All right, so he's a three-time Pro Bowler. This guy has played for three head coaches in college and the pros. And all three of those head coaches that he's played for has, have coached in both the college and in the pros. I think that's a decent clue. It's a decent clue. That is, that's, a, that's a pretty decent clue, actually, yeah. Someone like you, John, might be able to uh, kind of navigate that. Okay. Yeah. You know, and you know me, with, with uh, the NFL, it's tougher to throw out statistics. Yeah, it is. There's not it's Easier not like cheat. baseball where you can you can really kind of dive into some to some really noteworthy statistics and um, and still not give too much away. All right. And it's just really easy to cheat with uh, NFL statistics. Seemingly there are fewer statistics that you can throw out there. So you can't, yep. you know, 255 touchdowns, 256 touchdowns. You can narrow stuff down. So that's it, people. We're just trying to prevent you from cheating because we know that's what you're going to do. Yeah, we know you will. We know you will. I've accused people publicly of that already. <laughs> I know you have. Yes, you have. I, I, I really have. I really have. I don't I don't think uh the, the man I uh that got listen, Michael that my got Michael Vick got it got it without cheating. There's we, no way. We uh, we work in theme parks. So we've seen people come up to the uh, to the booth to get tickets to get into Universal or Disney. You, and need, to, you to, need to say we worked. We worked. We'll never work pa- again. Past uh, it's a good point. Um, but we've seen them walk up there and try to get a half price ticket for their ten year old, and the and the guy's obviously in his mid thirties. No, I, they, I saw a woman walk up with a and said, "This is my ten year old Bradley," and the guy's smoking a butt. And he's rifling through his uh, discharge papers from the Marines. Just completely there. It makes he, no sense. Don't know why he, he would have them out. Seems like it's a bad idea. But people aren't that bright. They're on vacation. So he's going through that. Apparently he had some sort of VA issues. And Why, uh, why would he, he do that right at the gate? Rifling. <laughs> why wouldn't he? Why that's a funny he? word is rifling right. through. See, now you just, just I, had, I, I, I was going to go on for about 20 minutes with this now. And now I'm just. I, uh, yeah. it's, it's 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 been submarine. I I needed to stop it. I did need to okay. stop it. Fair enough. Wow. No, wow. no. I mean, it would have been there. Would have been a lot of laughs. The show, man. Who are you trying? <laughs> he to wants be you to social distance from that topic. <laughs> no, we could go on and on, and we we could, and w- maybe we'll get back to it. Maybe we'll get back to the fact that because we, we've got another progressive set of progressive trivia uh, clues coming up, and we can talk about how people cheat at that point as well. But All let's right, first talk about, to your point, Disney, John, the theme parks. We talked about them opening. Disney's planning on opening all their parks essentially in mid-July. Universal's doing it next week, as is uh, SeaWorld, I think, maybe the following week. And um, one of the stories out there in terms of sports, 
is that the NBA is in discussions as we speak, exploratory, quote-unquote, exploratory talks with Disney to see if they can use the one location, which they all favor that uh, scenario, if you will, uh, at the ESPN Wild World of Sports Complex, where there are multiple courts uh, to play games, to practice. Multiple venues with multiple courts. Multiple venues, exactly. And there are also plenty of hotels to keep people and uh, keep everyone in the same general location. Right. And it really checks a lot of boxes for the for the NBA for them to come to, to Disney, where the facilities they need are there, uh, not just for the games, but for the players' safety and for putting them up and everything else. And I don't know, John. I think I think there'll be a little pushback from some people, but I also think it's a great idea. Well, let's, uh, I mean, I know that we're we we stand to possibly benefit if yeah, you know, if seventeen out of eighteen things go right. right. But um, yeah, uh, there's a possibility certainly because both you and I work over there as announcers from time to time. And well, and you're you're the voice. You're the voice of the uh, the ESPN Wild World Sports Complex. No, you, you really are. You've you've confused me with uh, someone else. Uh, but uh, it does check off a number of boxes, Mark. And if you even go outside of the things that you mentioned, transportation, they have a, a great deal of. Um, experience in trans- transporting large groups of people to places at spe- specific times for conventions and things. Wide World of Sports is isolated from the other parks fairly well uh, so that it, it's much, much easier. There's only one real entrance uh, and exit to the facility. So preventing people from getting to the property uh, will be a little bit easier security and those things. Um it's it, it it makes a lot of sense on some other levels as well because remember uh, ABC has a huge NBA contract and they're owned by who the Walt Disney Company. Yep. So and I, I'm I'm not and I'm not throwing that out there as a as a negative. Frankly, as they uh, stand to profit certainly from it on a number of levels, but I think more importantly is that they have a very good relationship with Adam Silver and the NBA, and I think some of the planning process, because they know each other so well, some of that planning process you can expedite a little bit, because as we talked about before, one of the more difficult things about stuff like this is deciding when to make a decision. What's your drop dead date on making and it's a terrible <laughs> turn of phrase for something like this but what is your date where it's like this we have to make this decision by this date because of, logistically as we just said there's a lot of moving pieces but also because we don't really know the answer to a lot of the medical issues you can't make a decision too early because things could change and i think one of the most one of the things people have to realize about the reopening of sports is, I believe, and I think a lot of people do, that the worst thing that could happen is if they would reopen and then have to shut down again. Because then I think that spells the death knell for the season. Perhaps well, football could get a couple of weeks off in the middle of the season. But don't you agree that for, particularly basketball, if they were to start up the playoffs, the NHL has a, has a, has, has a plan now. And it, if they were to start those up and then something would cause them to shut them down again, I, I don't think see any way where you could start them again. The thing is, is we have to have some common sense with this thing. And I think that is something that is tough to get. And I'm not going to blame any any person. I'm not going to blame a societal trend or a demographic. I'm going to say it's very, very natural when you're existing in an uncertain world that you panic 
and your decisions are based not necessarily on common sense. If we look back to when the NBA closed their season, it's because one of their players was tested positive. Soon after that, two or three tested as well. I have not heard of anyone else. And though all of those players existed in locker rooms, up against other players in games, airplanes. Yeah. Refer, uh, referees, officials so that went from game to game. I have not heard of a huge cluster or spread as a result. So if one or two test positive, when this thing comes comes back, I think cooler heads will prevail and say, yeah. listen, we just isolate them. If you've had contact with them, be careful. We're going to test you more vociferously, if you will. They're going to have testing and temperature-taking protocols in place to begin with. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're right, John. A lot of those questions you bring up, every sports league is going to deal with. But in terms of this decision about location, that's ch- that is that is make if they make this call, like I said earlier, it checks off a lot of boxes, and all of a sudden now the decisions, as opposed to this wide highway versus all kinds of choices, has been limited severely, and they can really focus on how to test, how to isolate, how to contact trace, this, that, or the other. And, you know, I personally, I don't know what would be in the way outside of what you mentioned, the normal things that are just worrying the sports leagues. What else would normally, what would be in the way of making this call? I don't, I, I can't see it. And even, uh, you know, cynical Outlets like the Guardian can't see it. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with all of those things. I do. I, I'm a little more concerned that if you had a breakout now in a situation where you had so many uh, of the folks together, and you know, again, as we've said, no, you try as hard as you want, but you cannot keep things airtight. You will always come in contact with other people, no matter what. Um, even if you're limiting the number of people there. But if there were then some sort of a situation where multiple people are testing positive, and I don't mean just like two people, if people are becoming symptomatic and and, and uh, testing positively, that y- you might be in a situation where the better part of valor, the smart thing to do is to shut something down. Um, but then the ripple effect of that is, I don't know how you start up again if you do that at this late of a period, they're talking about coming back playing in July. Now we moved into August, something like that. I think they they just may run out of time on the season, if nothing else. So that's, you know, and yeah. I think those are valid concerns. I, I do think that the, the scale has seems to have tipped a little bit, given all of the things that we still don't know about the virus and, and things that we're learning. I think the scale has tipped, to your point, Mark, towards looking at something like this and saying, okay, you need to give me the negatives now because I have checked off many of the boxes that need that have to be checked off. Now, you need to tell me what other boxes we need to check off or which ones we can move forward without maybe necessarily checking off. But again, and I'll, we say this after everyone, after every discussion we have about this, testing is the key. No doubt about it. And again, they have got to be careful because you want to have the general public have access to tests, you know, a, a, as much as the big sports leagues have access to tests. And, and we're getting better and better in this country. I think it's up to about 44,000 tests per million, which is finally catching up 
to the rest of the world. But, um, you know, there's that's still an issue. And it's not just one test, John. That's the thing. It's multiple tests right. for, for individual people. You've got to sort of keep testing. And that's going to involve an, an awful lot. But I think in terms of a venue that can house not only multiple facilities, but multiple uh, places to house the athletes, transport the athletes, first-class medical facilities are all around. It is isolated from the rest of the parks. I'm not sure in terms of a location, if they are going to go with a centrally located place in their plan, which seems to be the the, the heart of their plan, if they're going to do that, I'm not sure there's any negatives for going this way. The negatives are the negatives that apply to any situation sure. in terms of opening up uh, a sports league or a theater or a theme park or whatever it is. All right, let's go to our next set of progressive trivias. John, if you want to have your rant about cheating that I so um, callously, I shouldn't say callously. I didn't do it on purpose like that, but, uh, you know, I... It wasn't. It wasn't very showbiz intuitive of me. I could have let you gone on for twenty minutes. It, we we would have had a three and a half hour show, but there would have been twenty minutes of comedy gold that people could pull from and talk about twenty one year or twenty four years later in a Hulu documentary. Is that pretty right, much so what our. That's pretty much what our percentage is then. So three and a half hour, uh, twenty minutes. So that's six, seven, a little over seven. So about one seventh of the time. Not bad. Uh, it really isn't. It's more than ten percent, brother. Come on now. That's right. There's a lot of a lot of shows I listen to that. Wow, ten percent. Still, be a climb still up below the Mendoza ladder. line, though. But we're working on it. What's, what's that, Jeff? <laughs> we're Sorry. still below the Mendoza line, but we're working on it. We are. All right. First four clues for this NFL player played with Ryan Fitzpatrick, Case Keenum, three-time Pro Bowler, played for three head coaches in college and the pros. All three of those head coaches coached in the college. Coach in the college level and in the pros. Next four clues coming up. I've started five playoff games with two different teams in the NFL. I started three years for my college team, won 30-plus games, including all three bowl games. I'm a former number one overall draft pick. Former number one overall. And two of the head coaches I have played for have won national championships. One has won a Super Bowl. All right, now. I just have a feeling because of all the college football clues, Jeff. John's John's going to be on this one. Do you have any idea, Jeff? Uh, Not yet, but uh, I'm I'm inching closer. All right. I want to also talk about this potential poll question that we had out there at one point in time, which was greatest comebacks in sports. And I think it could be players, it could be teams, it could be in series, but it also could be in your team's history. And I don't know if you guys agree, John, if you want to start there, we we could talk about the overall, I certainly have a handful that we could talk about in terms of overall great comeback stories in, in, in sports history, but maybe we make it about our team's. So that it's something that is more of a deep cut, if you will, as opposed to a hit, as opposed to a top 40 hit. All right. You up for that? Sure. Uh, In terms of comebacks for the Giants or the 49ers, uh, really, because the Warriors 
I, I never considered them my team once they moved from San Francisco, John. Understood. Uh, so with the Giants, I would say in the 2012 playoffs, that run of the division series and the, and the uh, league championship series was, uh, was a pretty great comeback because we were down 2 nothing, and I say we and I mean it. We were down 2 nothing against the Reds, and it's a best-of-five series. Having to go to Cincinnati, win all three, they did. It's a pretty good comeback. And then down 3-1 to one to the St. Louis Cardinals in the league championship series, having to win game five in St. Louis with Barry Zito on the mound, who had famously sort of flamed out for the Giants after winning a Cy Young with the A's. And um, they came back, won all three. So that comes to mind for for the San Francisco Giants. The obvious one for the Niners is the the 1980 game, even though they finished the season 6-10, and 10, they were down 35-7, to seven, I believe, at, at the half, and Joe Montana came in. And it was against the Saints, who I think won one game that year. So it's a great, noteworthy, regular season comeback, but I don't consider it, you know, in my, in my top, you know, even in a top 10, the comeback against the Giants in the wild card game in 02, down by more than three touchdowns, came back to win that game. That's also noteworthy, but the very next week got blown out by Tampa Bay. So it loses a little oomph. The examples I gave for the Giants, they went on to win the World Series. I just think that puts it in a better light. Anyway, those are the things that come to mind, and I think I'll think of some others as we move forward. But do you have anything off the top of your head, Johnny? No. No, honestly. Are you serious? No, I am absolutely serious because, honestly, when we threw out the best, the greatest comebacks of all time and I started thinking about them, uh, I had one where my team was uh, at on not on the losing, on the tying end of that one we talked about, which is the choke at doke in 1994 between uh, Florida up uh Twenty-eight to three, thirty-one to three, I believe, on uh, on Florida State, and ended up tying at, at beginning of the fourth quarter, and uh, ended up with a thirty-one thirty-one tie. That I remember. Um, none of the other comebacks that uh, that I really thought about. I thought about Reggie Miller, what nine points in eight seconds versus the Knicks. Um, in, and I think that was ninety-four. Was that ninety-four as well? Ninety-four, ninety-five, or all this stuff is early '90s stuff for me. Um, and then, obviously, the Patriots over the Falcons in the Super Bowl. But I, I, you Huge. talking about my teams, uh, Redskins, Orioles, Virginia Cavalier football, or basketball for that matter, uh, Florida Gators. Um, yeah, I, there are really none that come to the fore for me. I'm sure the Caps have a few. Um, though for them, I was much, much, I was much more used to being up three goals and then losing than I was, uh, on the opposite end of that. So I don't really have any for my teams, Mark. Now that you changed the rules on me midstream. I did. And I apologize for that. And of course I I determined in the last show that you like to narrow things down so that basically any question you ask on this show is really the only correct answers are ones that involve the giants or the 49ers outside of that. You will you, you you will chip away at, at the answer to the point where you can narrow it down. Yeah. To, you know, 
I want to know the greatest comeback by a San Francisco team. That's really all you want. You don't well, want to hear anything else. Well, I certainly want to narrow it down to that for me to be able to talk about. I don't want to talk about anything else besides the Giants and the 49ers. Really, John, if I had my druthers, I'd be doing a podcast on local San Francisco sports. Oh, I, I realize that. But I don't have my druthers. No, that's not the case, actually. I just sure thought it might be more interesting. We might get things we haven't heard of if we threw it out to our listeners. We might get things we haven't thought about outside of the Patriots, which is probably the best one of all time since it was the Super Bowl. Obviously, the Bills and the Oilers, which was a classic right. in 1992 sure. wildcard game. Uh, the, you know, the Red Sox coming back from a 3 nothing deficit that had never happened and probably never will again against well, the that one as well. You know, against their hated rivals. Again, those are those are the, you know, those are the greatest hits, and and I thought you'd appreciate that, John. But I, I guess, I guess you're like others that we know that yeah. Well, you need to know ahead of time about things. <laughs> no, I'm not. I, 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 wow, I have. Uh, I, you know, I, I guess I, I guess this COVID thing, you know, and it's just becoming more of a planner, John. Uh huh. Okay. You're you're the one giving me notes in the middle of the show. That's what I'm going to say. If we're if we just need to move on, we're just on it. We're just on the time yeah. clock. That's all. I, under, I I I understand that. I understand that. But it, it, the thing is, off the top of my head, honest, quite honestly, I cannot yeah. remember any major comebacks. Um, you know, one of the great comebacks in a Redskin game is actually your 49ers coming back on them in an NFC championship game, but then not winning it. I mean, it's it, one of the great comebacks involving a Redskin team, and we ended up winning. Sadly, we are the team that surrendered that uh, to that comeback. You got your comeuppance the, um, the following two weeks, though. Yeah, I know. I, I'm sorry. I know. I, that's not well, that. no, I just thought I'd bring I thought I'd bring one up. Your team showed a lot of moxie in that. When was that? Eighty. Uh, well, it was, no, no, no. it was January of 84, but it was the 83, January of 84, season. 83 season. Right. Yeah. Well done. So, Jeff, anything come to mind with you for your caps or anything else? No, I was when I was thinking of greatest comebacks, I was thinking of Adrian Peterson when he came back from that torn ACL the next season and has continued to when they were talking about him could potentially retiring and uh, he's still running at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I've thought about players as well. I, uh, you know, um, Michael Vick, I think, is an interesting one coming back from two years of prison. And I think he made the Pro Bowl or certainly got a Comeback Player of the Year award. I think uh, some of those stories are, are, are pretty fun in terms of individuals coming back. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, nothing nothing with your team. Huh? So maybe that was well, ill-advised. I, mean, I just uh, thought from our if we threw it out to our listeners, we'd get stuff that we hadn't even thought about. I, when when I think of comebacks, uh, the the comeback in the wild card game that the Nationals just had last year was fun. That yeah, was a that was big great. comeback. That one may actually go down in history, although it seems so fresh now. You don't think mm-hmm. of it like that, but uh, yeah, I, 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 comebacks wise, nothing strikes me as huge other than the ones that everyone would know about in the past. 
Now, Mark, I don't think it's poorly thought out. I just think there are some, you know, if you you don't know what everyone's favorite teams are. But again, I didn't think of the Nationals one. That would have been a good one because I think more of myself as an Orioles fan because that's what I grew up. I grew up watching them. And while I follow the Nationals, I actually follow the Orioles more closely and just trying to remember one of those. But I, I would love to hear of other people's because the ones all of the ones I remember are the very, very specific ones that that everybody remembers. You know, Reggie Miller, that f- the famous Reggie Miller, which I just thought was amazing. Um, Patriots in the Super Bowl, the Red Sox, the Yankees. That may be sing- the single greatest comeback if you're encompassing series and yeah. then throw the history of who it is on top of that. Um, but I just don't have any off the top of my head for my uh, for my teams. Now, I'll probably Google it and I'll find some that I can't remember. But uh you know, just none that I can. And, and I'll fully admit that my memory of regular season, I'm not like a baseball player. We talked about this baseball player. It's like 90 and you interview him and he will remember. You can go, hey, uh, you know, I, I, I was at a game in 47, uh, third game of the season. Is that? Yeah, Phillies. I went two for five. I mean, they just remember that. Crap. I don't so, I don't. Remember. So I don't good. Remember. I would say, though, in all of sports, in all of sports, it is hard to, I would say it's hard to make an argument against the two two of the greatest comebacks in all t- of all time for the NFL and, and Major League Baseball involve New England teams. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I don't know how you get to a better comeback than being down twenty eight to three in a Super Bowl in the third quarter. I watched that the other day. I picked that game up. Um, I think midway through the second quarter, they were showing it on greatest games on NFL network and picked it up and stayed with it. It was a you know, shortened version. They obviously took out. It wasn't the full broadcast, but it was still, I stuck with it for like an hour and a half to watch the end of it because I remember sitting here in my living room and it was my wife and I, and just a couple of friends of ours watching it. And we were kind of only half paying attention after Atlanta got up so big, you know, it's, we're having some drinks and, uh, sure out in the pool and then, you know, take the dogs for a walk, paying no attention. And then all of a sudden turn it around and, oh, well, oh, look at that. They scored a touchdown. Isn't that cute? Oh, isn't that neat? And then, you know, it happened. Um, and then, of course, as we said, the Red Sox Yankees, there is no more storied rivalry in sport. Yeah. Though we can argue that one. We'll now get every the Ohio State Michigan fans uh, who will jump on board with that. But is there a more storied rivalry? And then in a series that's worth more, Right. It ends up looking so lopsided to begin with and then throw in the personalities involved. And it's just uh, it's as good a sports story as there ever was or ever could be in my mind. And it's against the backdrop of Boston sports having so much heartbreak and disappointment. And it's like it. It's the old adage that the arc of history bends towards justice because if you live long enough or if you have a big enough view, this city that has been cursed outside of the Celtics, you know, and the Bruins ago and the Bruins, the Bruins to some degree. But I mean, the Bruins didn't do anything for decades. And I know they won one over the last 10 years, but in terms of the Red Sox and the Patriots, brutal heartbreak and uh you know and now they own the maybe the two best sports comebacks in the history of all north american sports it's 
quite storybook. All right. Jeff got it right, John. Yeah, I saw that. I should have thought. I cannot believe I, I should have seen that right. one coming. I should have seen that one coming. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the one of your go to guys. You should always think when you start throwing out college, it's gonna be either of the SCs more than likely. Not necessarily. But yes. But Pretty yes. I am the active leader. Uh, okay, we'll, we'll go back. Played with Ryan Fitzpatrick, Case Keenum, three-time Pro Bowler. Played with three head coaches in college and the pros. All three have coached in college and the pros as well. Started five playoff games with two teams. Started three years for my college team. Won 30-plus games, including all three bowl games. I'm a former number one overall draft pick. Two of the head coaches I played for have won national championships. One has won a Super Bowl. I'm the active leader in fumbles returned for touchdowns. How about that? Active leader there. Last five years have averaged over six sacks and 45 tackles a season. Not, not complete all pro numbers in my mind. My college team finished in the top 10 during my entire career there. And I am currently a free agent. Jeff got it right. Well, we'll, we'll wait to, we'll wait to, to say it in case people are playing. But yeah, I'm um, going to ask, I'm going to, I'm going to call, I, I'm going to ask for a clarification on, uh, on early clues that are were, still remain confusing to me. And that's the whole coaches thing, because I initially wrote it down thinking he paid for three coaches in college and three coaches in the pros, six total. And then you said all three coached in both. So I'm assuming what you meant for is he had three coaches all total time, through college and the pros. So Okay. I mean, that was confusing. I understand. I understand you reading that right, but yes, played for three head coaches in college and the pros. So I should have said a total of three head coaches yeah. in college and the pros would have been, would have clarified that. And and uh, so yeah, so so you may have gone off the beaten path a little bit with that. I apologize. No, I that's not why I didn't get it right. But, but immediately I, it said all three have, have coached in college and the right. pros, so it sort of I clarifies it in the very next clue. I uh, know I get that. I just don't, you know. I'm just, I'm, and uh, being a guy that got it, I that clue had nothing to do with me getting it. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> That's just like you know. I don't know if Anthony Burgess or something. He's got a Clockwork Orange feel to the language, where I've got to read around it three or four times to figure it out. So. Again, all three. The very next clue said all three, so it cl- it clarified. I know what I'm saying. It just had an Anthony Burgess like feel to it. If you've ever read a Clockwork Orange, and if you hadn't, I highly recommend reading it. But it is one of those that requires. Mark, have you read a Clockwork Orange? Clockwork Orange? I have not seen the movie. Was plenty for me. It was. Oh, you're one who hates the movie. No, I don't hate it. It's just I'll never. I have no desire to see it again. That really? used to be our go-to midnight movie back in Virginia when I was a kid because they played it, and you know, midnight movies were huge in in our area on the weekends. Every theater. Th- showed you know dozens of midnight movies and that was something we, you did consistently i don't know if everyone else did as well but in the northern virginia dc area it was a big deal and uh clockwork orange was i think one of the theaters there always had clockwork orange just like there were a handful of movies that would always play halloween would always play in a midnight movie and clockwork orange and we used to just if we had nothing else to do we'd sneak beer into a midnight showing a clockwork orange and laugh, laugh, laugh. Because man wants a comedy in a midnight film. Forever just... changed the song Singing in the Rain for so many people. <laughs> Not me. No. I may be my favorite version of it in a film. Oh, mine too. <laughs> yeah. 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 But Mark, you know, it's a very well done movie. There's no doubt about that. Oh. I did see it. I just have no desire to see it again. It's just, uh, it's the kind of dark, 
yeah, it's 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 not only dark and bleak, but even in even Charles Dickens in Bleak House, an actual novel. <laughs> he called that's, it Bleak House. He people called it, get it. He called it Bleak House. Even that has something to grab onto that has some light in it. Not oh, this Bleak thing. House is like an MGM musical next to <laughs> that's exactly. That's, and it's called Bleak House. That's one of my favorite parts of A Clockwork Orange is that fixing him broke him even more. Like the oh, light yeah. at the end of the tunnel is complete and utter darkness. I loved it. Malcolm it's McDowell. A genius film. I mean, uh, Malcolm McDowell, the acting, the oh. cinematography, the direction, everything about that movie was so good. It would be impossible. Having read that book, it would be impossible to uh, picture anyone else other than Kubrick making that film because no one would have had the warped um, self-confidence to do some of the things that he did in that film. And, and to Mark, I fully admit there are moments of that that are difficult to watch. And until relatively recently and and taking books that were kind of an aside for Stephen King, he was the only one to make a good Stephen King book movie for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. King's short stories make better movies than his novels. Agreed. Pretty much. If you look at like Stand By Me, Shawshank oh, yeah. Redemption, yep. yeah. Green Mile, they make better movies than the than the full length. Stuff. That's true. I think do. it's just there's so much to put in that screenwriters presented with maybe an impossible task. Although. To I will That's say exactly this. It. I love What's the television it? version of The Stand, the four-part miniseries. I love yeah. it. Yeah, pretty so, good. But again, four-part, had to tell them the four-part miniseries. If you try to make that seven into a hours movie, long. even a three-hour movie, it sucks. Yeah. yeah Hulu did a nine-part series on uh, 9-11, uh, I'm sorry, 11-22-63, and, uh, and that was unsuccessful, if you ask me. And that yeah, had James great. Franco. Love the book. Not- the, the book was amazing, but to your point, John, you know, th- this, these huge tomes, there's so much to put in there. Uh, what's the other successful Stephen King movie in your mind besides uh, The Shining, Jeff? Oh, The Green Mile. He had a, he had a decent run. But I mean him. based on a novel oh. as opposed to a short story. I, none. I, I can think Gary's of some something. garbage, though. Carrie's okay. You know, okay. Carrie, Carrie, because it's it was made to be a horror film. I think you're right, and it was a was a was a decent uh, also a television movie. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. And I thought the first of the new it series, the Scarsgard one, uh, yeah, was pretty good. The first one, I didn't see the second one, but I've uh, seen neither. Yeah. Yeah, the the uh, short stories, folks. If you take nothing else away from this show, the short stories of Stephen King make much better films. All right, Johnny, we have six we have six topics to discuss in our potpourri segment. Let's we're do it. Push, we're pushing it out. Where are we on it? What what time did we actually start, Jeff? Uh, we uh, are about uh, forty five minutes in. Oh, okay. Oh, all good. Yeah, we're good. That's we've good. Got, yeah. We've got speed rounded. We we should right. be speed we should be done now. Speed. So anything else is just extra added bonus for these people. Y'all should Woo-hoo. all be happy. Right. <laughs> Everyone right. should be happy. Okay. Uh, all right. The, the The first topic is I feel like you know because I've been watching Dana Carvey on uh, YouTube, yeah. and one of the things that's popped up is the John McLaughlin character he had on. Yeah, on Office topic, Lance Armstrong. Put on the training wheels. Here comes the drug boy. Sorry, I don't know. Where and it's like, is he is he guilty? Well, you know, John. No! <laughs> Jack Gentleman. 
Mortoni. What should President Reagan do? Well, I think he ought to roll. He's a tennis ball. victory at the part of Oh, my gosh. It's just hilarious. Okay, first, first topic. Uh, with baseball coming back and maybe having an 82-game season, you know, everyone has dismissed all of the statistics that would happen this year that have to do with uh, accumulation, home runs, RBIs, um, wins, strikeouts. Average, somebody hit over 400? Well, no. See, that's the thing. With ERA and with batting average, it it could be something that breaks a season-long sure. record and yet would have an asterisk because they didn't have to go the entire season to make that happen. So with ERA batting stats, uh, for instance, George Breton in uh, 1980, John, was hitting four, I think, 76 after 82 games. You know, does someone get a 1.12 ERA, which was, uh, you know, Bob Gibson's sort of modern record uh, for a season? What, what do you think of those stats and the potential of those two um, ERA and batting average? you know, possibly making a run at some records there. And, and how would you feel about that as a, as a baseball fan that, you know, that even though you don't love the numbers, you understand the importance therein. No, I, I don't dislike the numbers in baseball. I think I find it very interesting. In fact, I, we, you and I have said it many times, talking about the numbers in baseball is generally more entertaining than watching any given regular season <laughs> baseball game That's for true. that matter. But um, I think, you know, I, I always thought that the, um, the asterisk around uh, uh, Roger Maris's home run was was somewhat unfair because uh, yes, it, the, it was seven more game, excuse me, eight more games. But yeah, he did hit it in the 162nd game, I believe. He hit a 61st home run, he and, did. and he did. Uh, he tied Ruth, I believe, at 158. I think is how it worked. So four games over for for the tie. There were also a lot of other things that Babe Ruth didn't have to deal with that Roger Maris did. Um, one of them being that a solid uh, uh, percentage of well, all of the players that Babe Ruth played against were white. He didn't have to play against African-American players. So by definition, and I don't care if people think this is controversial, Babe Ruth did not play against the greatest baseball players in the world at that it, time. It he was a performance enhancer for him. It was He played against the greatest white baseball players at that time. So there was a whole uh, other group of people, group of talented athletes, who couldn't take part. Um, also, he did not have to uh, play back-to-back games after flying a great uh, distance night games on the West Coast. He didn't have greenies either, though, Johnny. He didn't, no. So there, there are a lot of things there I, I think you could weigh down both sides. So I think that's a little, uh, uh, I think it's a little unfair, that asterisk. But if you have an 82-game season, there's going to be an asterisk on the season no matter what. And will it will it minimize somebody who hits four hundred? Yep. Sorry, just will it will. But and and but, that's not and to take even, anything away from their performance. Yeah. But it's just the reality of we talked about earlier. You don't have enough of a, a sample size. Well, eighty-two games is not enough of a sample size. If a guy played, if they had a hundred and thirty game season, a hundred and forty game season, you might be able to make an argument. But to your point, Brett hitting over. In four seventy or something, and I know that there have been players since then who have been hitting over four hundred or hovering around it at the uh, halfway through the season, eighty two games into the season. So, yeah, by by necessity, but there's going to be an asterisk on the whole season. There is, but those are these only real stats that I can come up with that uh, people will care about because the rest 
won't affect anything because they're based on accumulation. So you're going to have half a season. You're going to have half as well, many home runs. Percentage, fielding percentage, certainly errors, you know, total errors and things like right. that. But those aren't what people really care that much right. about. In but, terms of the sexy, in terms of the sexy ones with like RBIs and, and uh, home runs and well, wins and those kind of things, no one will care about. But they will care about ERA and batting and average. The, and you're right. It will be an asterisk. The, There's it, no doubt it, about it. It already it. But it would have be been fun an to asterisk. See if someone can do that. It already would have been an asterisk, though, because those have already been policed by minimum plate appearances, minimum starts, minimum games, minimum innings. So I don't think that they would have would have counted in that category, even in a regular season, if a guy had an ERA of one point one two after 82 games. But that's all he played. It wouldn't go into well, record books. Yeah, but those things, Jeff, are based on the number of games your team played, the percentage of at bats for the number of team games your team has played. So yeah, if, if you only start 82 games in a season, that's a normal season. You're not going to qualify for the batting title. Right. But if, if your team only played 82 games, no, 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 no. It's a minimum. It's a minimum of, of this many innings. And I think, I think that I think that they'll be under the threshold of that many innings regardless because of half of the innings being lost. But the, but the, uh, the decision on what the minimum innings is, is based on what, an average number of innings in a 162 game season are so there would there there would be some massaging of that to some, and, and, but, I, but again and, i don't think it's really, average but i really don't think it's going to matter in the end i think what you're what you're going to run into is it's going to be and they may have to just add another uh place into the the, the record book on it is in in a shortened season which was shortened for no fault of anyone's involved I still think you can celebrate somebody if they do hit 407 over the season. Wrong! <laughs> no! <laughs> the answer is no. They should be frog boxed out of the league and perhaps shot. Okay. Next Jack NFL projections. God, that's just, just hilarious. It totally holds up 30 some odd years later. NFL predictions, pretty low-hanging fruit when this happens. And, you know, I always sort of roll my eyes on a couple of things, John and Jeff. It's number one, it's like, okay, the teams that won last year are the teams you're projecting again this year. My goodness. We know science tells us that half the teams that make the playoffs in one NFL season don't make the playoffs in the next season. But none of the people that get make a living out of projecting what this next season is going and prognosticating, none of them seem to take that into mind. I, I always think of that. Then I always worry about win projections. And have they added up all the wins so that overall, it, like it an works eight, out mathematically? Exactly. I think yeah. 256 games is how many wins there should be in the entire league because that's eight games times 32 uh, teams. And they have done that. And they haven't really, the top four teams, they've sort of gone back from last year. It's Kansas City, Baltimore, San Francisco, and New Orleans. But then number five, and here we go, it's the Dallas Cowboys. And not, I do think the Cowboys, uh, based on their history, they're going to have a good year. They seem to have a double-digit victory uh, season, followed by a mediocre season, followed by a double-digit victory season, and, and they're in line to have a double-digit victory season. I think they're going to have a good year. I really do. And, and we've all argued they're talented enough to be a top-five team. And, and so I don't have too much of a problem with that. It's just that the, the paragraphs that they talked about Kansas City, that they talked about Baltimore, San Francisco, New Orleans, there's like eight paragraphs on the Cowboys. It's like it doesn't matter if they're bad or if they're good. We, 
there is some sort of metric or algorithm out there that says if you are in the sports talk business, you need to spend a preponderance of time, perhaps 42% of your entire allotted time per day, talking about the Cowboys. That's because they occupy a very, very specific space as a team. And that is that they are a team that in almost every year, it's very close to the same result when you ask people their favorite NFL team and the team they hate the most. The Cowboys are usually in the top couple of of, of one and usually at the top of the other. Usually hated teams, they're generally very near the top. If not, maybe New England nudged them out for a bit. That's coming to an end, clearly. Uh, but uh, so that's the reason is because there, there's no gray area when it comes to the Cowboys. It, you know, the, the Detroit Lions, I have no I have nothing invested in the Detroit Lions at all. And if they ended up with another one of their signature five and 11 seasons, um, OK. And if they got to the playoffs and won a game, I would think that was amazing. Oh, that's oh great. Look at the Lions. You know, the Cowboys just engender strong feelings. The people that hate them don't want them to do well. There are people, they they have as many people invested in them who really have no connection to Dallas as any other team in the NFL. They're a team that people glammed onto. And right now they sit in that thing where, in that position where a lot of sports fans now who are in their uh, 40s and stuff, right, right in that sort of pocket where NFL fans where they have the well, none of us have disposable income anymore. But, you know, that they, they're all coming of age in the 90s when the Cowboys were the most popular team. So. All right. A lot of Pittsburgh Steeler fans out there who are our age, Mark. Yeah, because they didn't live in areas where they they either lived in an area where there was a crappy team. Hello, Detroit Lions again. Uh, or they didn't live in an area where there was a team near. So who do they glam onto? Well, who are they seeing most often? They're seeing the Pittsburgh Steelers on national television. They're seeing them in Super Bowls. So, you know, that that's what the Cowboys have going for them. And, and this is not disputing that we talk about them way too much. And I love, though, that they're number five because I hate them. And I think uh, expectations will sink them. Well, and I, I mean, perhaps that's the case. I don't think so. I think they're going to have a pretty good year. But I, I just don't understand... Well, I, I, I guess I should say instead of not understanding, I guess I just have to tip my hat to Jerry Jones because despite the narratives shifting wildly since the 70s with Hollywood Henderson and America's team and everything else, that narrative that was out there, everyone ha- wanted to hate the Cowboys or a few that loved them, but then they, were, they didn't mean anything. Then, of course, it's Jimmy Johnson and and Jerry Jones, and, and, and there's a lot to hate about that team. Very arrogant, very cocky, uh, riddled with drugs and prostitution. <laughs> so you know some things to like as well. And But then, literally, John, since 1996, they've won one playoff game. In 25 years, they've won one playoff game. How has he maintained that mystique so that the whole country either loves them or hates them? I don't get it. Well, I think some of it is it's just that the myth was so great from the previous incarnation of the Cowboys, the Tom Landry, Roger Staubach Cowboys. We were able to create a myth, throw the cheerleaders in there uh, because if you weren't somebody who grew up in the seventies, you don't realize how ubiquitous the freaking cowboy cheer. They had a made for TV movie for God's sake. They showed up on the love boat 
They were on, you know, everybody's Christmas special. They just they knew how to market that team back then. And they they know continually know how to market that team. And it's just, you know, it's that thing. If you say you're America's team enough, people eventually believe you. Well, and, and then evidently generations upon generations still believe you. So it's it's remarkable, and uh, we'll see what happens. We and NFL Films other- helps make myths, Mark. NFL Films help make myths. Well, I mean, we that's all- – yeah. We all, you know, kids of our age, I'm too young to remember when the Packers were in their heyday in the 60s, but I grew up thinking it was the greatest thing ever because I saw the myth that was made on NFL films. Yeah, it's good. And uh, Roger Staubach certainly uh, cashed in on that myth. I think he's worth, I don't know, eight, nine hundred million at this point in time. He is considered one of the richest ex uh Former yeah. athletes he got involved in the real estate business in Dallas, though. It wasn't it wasn't just Mark. Got to give Roger a lot of credit. I hate the fact that he was a cowboy, was a Navy quarterback. I have a, a, a great deal of affection for him. But he actually didn't just uh, cash in on his likeness. He got involved in real estate, learned a lot. And then he had the extra added thing when no one turns down a Texas real estate meeting with Roger Staubach. So he gets into every room. That's true, and with that uh, oil bust in the early 80s, remember that in Houston? Yeah. Uh, that's right when he retired, so he probably gobbled up a lot of early properties at next to nothing and has yeah. been able to parlay that pretty well. And I'm sure he had all kinds of inside information as well. Who's kidding who? Uh, let's go to the match. I'm going to I'm going to cut a couple of uh, topics right now unless uh, you really feel strongly about those, Johnny. Uh, how often do I ever feel strongly about anything? Yeah, I mean, I just thought you maybe felt we're going to talk Reggie Bush a little bit later, but I feel more sorry for him than anything else. And and Lance Armstrong, the first uh, part of that, I haven't watched it all. The first one yet on the second uh, Sunday. I think it's it's a fascinating topic. There's no doubt about it. He's a fascinating guy. Yeah, and it's a classic American story. And we'll see, you know, because we love to build him up, we love to tear him down, but we also love to see him kind of love a redemption. Dust themselves off and start over again. We'll see what happens there. The match three, you said you, there's, they're already talking about the match three because the match two was so uh, well covered, well well viewed, and uh, got a lot of love, uh, just not only on uh, television but on social media. So they're already talking about the next one. And you said you have some fun matchups that you've put together, and I'd like to hear them, Johnny. Well, the, uh, the, there's a story, and it's uh, Dan Wetzel and Jay Busby of Yahoo Sports talking about uh, the match three because um, uh, Phil Mickelson has mentioned that he had a lot of fun, and he thinks that they should do it for charity every year with different uh, different celebrities. And some of the ones that they came up with, they came up with a lot of sports celebrities, Michael Jordan and Isaiah Thomas, which would be a lot of fun, uh, Bill, Bel- Bill Belichick and Roger Goodell. Uh, which I think Bill Belichick uh, and uh, Rex Ryan would be a much better choice. I think Rex Ryan and Bill Belichick. Uh, Alex Bregman and Clayton Kershaw was another one that might be fun. Uh, Another uh, Michael Jordan and Horace Grant. (laughs) Bonds and McGuire, which I absolutely love. Bonds and McGuire. Charles Oakley and James Dolan. I love that. Although I I don't think there's any way you'd stop Oakley from taking a a sand wedge to Dolan. Right. Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers. That's uh, fun. That's really uh, fun. Kevin Durant and Draymond Green. Right. Michael Michael Jordan and LeBron James. That's really fun, too, actually. Uh, Ed Orgeron versus whoever, because we just want Ed Orgeron on television, and I sure. agree. Sure. That would be 
That'd be great. And then he went through a few more uh, just to make you angry. Joe Exotic versus Carol Baskin. Uh, Lance Armstrong versus The Truth. Uh, Barack Obama and Donald Trump. So, But I thought the, the one that came to mind most quickly for me, and I think it's because I've been watching a lot of NFL films, is uh, I would uh, in every way like to see uh, Michael Crabtree versus Richard Sherman. All right. I would. Lo- I know that's a that, that I've narrowed it down to people who will remember, but uh, the year that the Seahawks went to the Super Bowl and won it, they beat the 49ers. But that was the NFC Championship game, I believe it was. It uh, was NFC Championship game, and in the end, Sherman knocked down a pass that was intended for uh, for Crabtree. And after <laughs> famously in the interview, he just read Michael Crabtree because Michael Crabtree's a horrible wide receiver. Just goes after him. And it was this huge cause celeb. And boy, I tell you, if you go back and look at the video of that, y- you get a sense of man they. They will grab any story and blow it so ridiculously out of proportion just because we're going to have two weeks now to talk about the Super Bowl. We better have we better have some storylines. But I think that one would be a, an awful lot of fun. So, John, it, it turns out that it just doesn't need me to focus the show on San Francisco stories. I know. I know. Evidently, they are so entrenched in the national consciousness both the Niners and the Giants, and and it is true. I have to admit. I mean, it is it is true. And that was a that was a big deal for a while, you know. And and of course, you know, now Sherman's with the 49ers, and that was a big deal. That was a championship game. It was a it was a throw to the end zone. It would have won the game for the 49ers, and uh, you know that's that's and the a classic. Thing, it was it was the throw was worse than anything Crabtree tried to do. Really, Crabtree wasn't really open on the play. No, it was right around that time that it was, you know, we were starting to see the chinks in Colin Kaepernick's uh, passer ability in in that armor. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and that was one of those things. He, he had done that the year before, actually, in the Super Bowl. There were four consecutive throws to Michael K- Crabtree on a, you know, it was, it was, you know, they were on the four-yard line or four- or five-yard line. Right. And they up. had... Four consecutive. We, you know, I saw that at your house, and Wrap I saw up. the championship. Game. Was that wrap it up? Sorry, I said a Niners thing. I didn't realize we would go off on a. Well, the thing is, is that it's a little too inside football. Yeah, inside I, 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 I thought that as well. I, I thought, thought I think Barack be. Obama and and Donald Trump would be hilarious. Yeah, Bar- Barack and Obama, I, and I go think uh, Michael Jordan and LeBron James is a natural. Yeah, the the other ones that I thought about were, uh, and these are going to be again. Are we have such a narrow uh, line, just a narrow thing we're trying to traverse with uh, with these references? But Rudy Tomjanovich and Kermit Alexander, I thought oh, might be a good one. My goodness, it's you know, uh, forty five year reference, but that's okay. Absolutely, Joe Theismann and Lawrence Taylor, I thought would be a great uh, would be a great fun. one. Um, uh, just uh, try to try to remember People that all are of under 60 years old, though. We probably should. Uh... Although yeah, Kermit I... has been in the news lately because he was released from prison during the coronavirus uh, pandemic. I saw who, that. Who was uh, Kermit? What's his name? Kermit Alexander. Kermit oh, Alexander. Kermit Washington. Excuse me. Washington. Right. Washington. Lawrence Taylor. No, no he's well, not in prison. One in three chance. LT finding himself back in back in trouble. All right, so here's the other one I want to talk about because it it keeps coming up and you say we should discuss it and and I'm not so oh, sure. Uh, can I give you one more? Yes. That I really was uh, uh David Ortiz and Mariano Rivera. 
All right. Wow. You just apparently just dismissing that one? Doesn't doesn't excite you because it's not a San Francisco one? Hold on. Let me think. No, Uh, it's because there's not a lot of classic matchups between the two of them. Yeah, but there's... There are enough. Comeback. For the Red Sox. Yeah, but it's... it does. It's not. It's not the two of them going head to head. You know what I mean. But he he hit the home runs off of Mariano. <clears throat> oh, those. Well, I I don't. Did he hit both of those in the in game one and two? He hit at least one, and Mariano came apart in both of those. So you're you know you're all right. Fair enough. You don't care for it. All right, let's move on. So tell me uh, what I uh, when uh, Ted Kowalik was the was the tight end for the Forty ers in '64. Can you can you break can you go upside the in down on the on the on the down up? With <laughs> I that? don't need to, John, because you'll bring up you'll bring up some random thing. You know, I mean, Ortiz. I, I'm sorry, Ortiz Rivera's does does nothing. It wouldn't Vic, excite anyone. Vic Washington. Can we talk about as a tailback? Vic Washington. What he was able to do for the he, he was able to do a lot, and he had a he had a uh, you know kickoff return for a touchdown in the opening seconds of the uh, divisional playoff between the. You know the 49ers and the Cowboys in nineteen. So Aaron Boone and Tim Wakefield also doesn't excite you. Aaron Boone and Tim Wakefield. Again, that's fine. It's it's one pitch, right? It's it's one yeah, matchup. But still, it's you know. No, you can relive that moment. We're going with Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. We're using that as a template, and we're going to do one pass or one pitch. No, it's got to be it's got to be something that has generated in the zeitgeist. In terms of a rivalry of Joe some Montana sort. and Danny White doesn't appeal to you. Now that when you're saying now Montana now, and Marino would work. No, actually, I thought you know what I thought when and this was the final one, and I'm sorry to have hijacked this a little bit, but I thought the final one should be uh, the two greatest players in sports never to win championships, and I thought it should be uh, Charles Barkley and Dan Marino. I, I think Barkley. <laughs> so I don't know who you put with Barkley as the Barkley thing. Barkley wants to be out it. there so badly. Yes, he does. And um, I think it would be funny just just to throw him out there. And he obviously is a telegenic personality. Okay. And Dan Marino is, too. That would be pretty fun. I, I like that one. I think that one works. Except I think Dan Marino tried to tried to qualify for the U.S. Senior Open or something. I mean, I think he is a scratch golfer. And Charles Barkley is so horrible. you got to put Barkley with Tiger. To have any chance whatsoever. But in my the, the great thing is, is you can you can promo it like someone's got to win. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Finally. Someone's got to win. I think and, that's how you do it, and I would be behind that one. And there should be a trophy that looks like a combination of Major League Baseball's trophy and the Lombardi Trophy together that they win. Or excuse me, uh, the NBA Trophy and the Lombardi Trophy together. So it's like you guys, you didn't you didn't ever really get the one, but here you go. Here's the one that was for a made up television show. To, Here's a facsimile so that you can, you can tell your grandkids that you did win a championship of some sort. Uh, yep, I think that would be great. Actually, I like that one. That one that one could be top three for me, along with uh, Michael and LeBron and Barack and uh, Donald Trump. I think that would be fun. All right, so how about this NFL onside kick thing, John? Both, both times you've sent it to me, right. my eyes have rolled into the back of my head, like by the second or third paragraph when I've tried to understand what in the hell this is? What in terms of this idea that the Philadelphia Eagles has put forward as a sort of new rule for onside kicks is that I guess if you're at fourth and fifteen, no, you, you here, here's the rule. It. No, here here is the rule. The rule uh, what they're proposing is, and you can only do this uh, once in a game, 
Um, you can only do it twice during the season, I believe, or are the rules that are there. But if you um, if you scored, if you're trying to come back and win a game, and it has it can only happen in uh, during uh, regular playing time. You can't do this in overtime. Uh, even if you've you know if you kicked a field goal, you can't then do this in overtime. You can choose as opposed to attempting an onside kick. You can choose for one play, fourth and fifteen from your own twenty-five, and if you complete that, you you have the ball, just as if it's a an onside kick. If you don't, if you don't pick up the first down, then wherever the ball is dead, the other team gets it. That's the rule. I hate it. Thank you for explaining it to me. Sure. Because I kept thinking you had to you be. You had to be at 4th and 15? <laughs> yes. What are the odds, for God's sake? That's, that's why I gave, that's why As I would a matter give of fact, up on the articles. I would, I would be much more sold on that rule if it did have to be 4th and 15. The one in, it, one in a it, lifetime. If it's, it's like 3rd so, and 12, so, you, you either try to make the first down or you have your quarterback take a three two-step drop and just fall down. Now it's 4th and 15. We get an extra play. The funny thing is that at 4th and 15, you you do have that play. You already have that option to go for the first down. Yeah, and if you don't you do. if you don't get it, then the team gets it wherever right. the ball wants. I but that's you, it. you can some sort of kick you or can, something. At, you, know, you could do a drop kick at 4th and 15 and maybe have more of it. But apparently... I did read enough to, to understand that these days onside kicks are very, very are it's very rare to recover an onside kick these days. For whatever reason, the the teams have figured things out or whatever it is, uh, and it's it's much more rare to recover an onside kick than it used to be. So if you want to have that as an option, as a you know what what was it before, John? Maybe an eight percent, yeah, nine percent option that you would recover the thing. And maybe now it's down to four, you know, or five. Right. If you want to have it, if you want to, you know, and, and what are the odds of completing a fourth and 15? I'm sure they've looked at that. I'm, and I'm sure it's greater than the odds of actually uh, uh, recovering an onside kick. But the problem with that is it's not every fourth and 15 completed is worth the same. If you're down 30 with a minute left and you complete a fourth and 15 is probably because the other team is like, eh, eh, all right, let's get out of here. If indeed you are marching towards a comeback, then what are the odds that you can actually do that? So it's probably the odds are probably not as great as they appear to be. If you look at the overall statistics of a regular season, what's but it's, the kind, of, I think it's kind of interesting. It is. But what's the motivation behind it? I, they just, as with everything in the NFL, they want to make sure that they keep people involved in the game as long as you possibly can. And if it gives you a slightly better chance of coming back at the end of a game that otherwise people would lose interest in, keeps you there, then there you go. I The onside kick is one of the most exciting things in football. If you want to up your odds of getting an onside kick, get better at getting onside kicks. Practice it. It's inevitable that one is going to eventually happen. At some point, yes. And I'm not sure why the percentages have gone down from, say, 9 to 5%. I'm not sure what those reasons are. And I'm not sure if additional practice, Jeff, is going to, <laughs> is going to increase it tonight. I mean, I know that's the old school mentality. Yeah. I understand no, that. I think, I, think, I, I, think that, I think that if you're the team that's – if you're the Eagles and you want more onside kicks, then if you're the team that's practicing it and the defensive team isn't practicing it just like always – then I do think you up your odds. 
Johnny, this is what this is my issue with it is that you're going from special teams to keeping that defense on the field. And that's sort of odd to me. It's like you've 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 done your job, you've gotten off the field, and now it's well, actually, I guess it's for a kickoff, so the defense hasn't been on the field. So And also the 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 hands team comes on on a non side kick, so I think more of the starters are in there. It it's just using a whole different part of your your team in order to stop it. I mean, I think, I think it's a fun idea to talk about. I think it's to your point, John, I think that's the most prescient thing you said on this whole thing is that why don't we throw out a rule change that people will talk about in the dead zone between the draft and when we announce when training camp is going to be back. Yeah, because most of the most of the rule changes that are thrown out there are minuscule. People don't even know anything about them, and they're. Uh, but when they throw something out like this, people talk about it. It's like the uh, uh, instant replay for uh, pass interference, which they are doing away with again because it proved to be kind of a nightmare. But I think sometimes uh, throw it out there either to 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 your point, Mark, pique people's interest in the dead time, or to just give them something more to pique their interest in uh in the regular season because there's so many ways to consume nfl games that i know the nfl never going to struggle for tv ratings but more and more people are putting on the red zone more and more people are watching their highlights at another time when they can or even the full game at another time so i think it's you know they they're just trying to tweak it football has generally done a relatively good job um, I don't agree with all the changes that have been made, but I think they've done a really good job recognizing that things don't happen in a vacuum, and y- you do have to tweak your game and change your game as time goes on. They're good at evolving. There's no doubt about that. And I do think that that pass interference rule is something they should examine. I mean, I, I as much as I wanted the Rams to win that championship game, and I was you know hypocritically looking the other way, on that call, it was pretty egregious, or that non-call was pretty egregious. And I think having a rule is important. Now, the way they, you know, you never get everything right the first time. The first blush at fixing that was, you know, a relative mitigated disaster. I think everyone would agree. I but agree. now they're talking about a sky a sky official. Yeah, You know, you, you have it from the top. It's the view from the top. You've got the guy in the booth, and that guy is the one that can, can that can make the call. He he or she can make the call regardless of what's happening on the field because they may miss some stuff. And I think those kinds of discussions are are worthy, and those kinds of evolutions of the game and adaptations of the game to make it more fair are important. Uh, well, I think the interesting thing about the interesting thing about the pass interference. Thing and everyone agrees that uh, the most perplexing calls frequently in, a, in an NFL game are revolve around whether or not a catch was a catch and pass interference. And I, I I think they throw a lot of these ideas out to uh, improve the situation, but they never talk about what I think is the one. Um, it's not going to cure everything, but the, the the one issue that they should be addressing and should change their position on, and that is full-time officials. 
Because to Jeff's point, you know, one of the reasons about practicing, one of the reasons that officiating is sometimes questionable, I think, in the NFL is because these guys are not full-time officials. They are guys with other jobs. Ed Hockley, well, his job is clearly taking steroids and, and doing curls. But uh, outside of that, uh, these guys are orthodontists and lawyers and business owners. And, and I think that the NFL game has, has gotten so fast. And the rules have, as rules often do in sports, have gotten more and more complicated. Um, I think the idea that the most popular sport in America, which makes, argue in any way you want, if, if not trillions, high billions of dollars it generates in any I don't, year, think, I don't think it makes trillions. I think it might generate trillions of dollars worldwide. I think if you look I, I at every dollar so. that's generated through NFL for marketing, uh, products, everything, I think worldwide trillion dollars, I think that's an easy one. I You'd easily make that argument. I, I just looked it up. It's four bajillion. Four, see, a bajillion, which is like <laughs> 11 D trillion. Um, but I think He's not, not having... Guys. Not having full-time officials is really one of the issues that, and they don't want to do it for whatever reason. I guess paying those, how many? I don't know how many officials there are, but paying those guys is, you know, that might that might preclude Roger Goodell from being able to buy another solid gold house with kitten fur sinks, and we're not going to stop that. All right, you know what? We're also not going to stop. We're not going to stop the uh, the show from from just completely sort of sprawling into the hour and a half range over the last three or four shows. We just, you know, we were so vigilant for so many shows and it's, and it's just not going to happen, John. It's just not going to happen. I mean, we're, we're pushing an hour and a half, aren't we? I know, I know, I know, I know. I blame you, John. I blame me as well. This is clearly the natural flow of the show. Well, I know. If you and don't that, put a timer in front of you, it goes an hour and a half. I mean, it just is what it is. It is. It, it's the natural. It's the natural flow of the show. Yes. That's, I don't know why it. I'm. I'm. I'm so. You know. I don't. I don't know why I'm so constrained with the rules of the man. I don't either. You really it's, are. You it, really are. That's not like you. That's generally me. I'm the rule follower usually. You know what it is, John? It's it's the the moral ambiguity that I have. Could be. It, it's yeah. It's it's just this this mixed bag. And it's uh, it ain't easy, man. The cognitive dissonance that that thrives in my soul and head are are rough. The only reason we do this show is that we're going to peel away the uh, the layers of that onion until in the final show we <laughs> we get to the bottom of why yeah. why is Mark this way? Yeah. That's the that's the subtitle of after further re- review. Parenthetically, why is Mark this way? I think that's it. That's why we're here. All right. Well, there you go. Very good. Very, a free therapy session during COVID. Okay. Our progressive trivia answer. We'll go to uh, all the clues again one more time in case you haven't guessed it. Played with Ryan Fitzpatrick, Case Keenum, three-time Pro Bowler. Played for three head coaches. Total in college and in the pros. All three have coached in the college, in college and the pros. So all three head coaches he's played for have coached both in college and in the pros. I admit those things are not as well written as they could be. I have started five playoff games with two teams, started three years for my college team, and in those three years, won 30-plus games, including all three bowl games. A lot of success for that college football team while I was there. Former number one overall draft pick. That's big, and that's a cheatable, that's a cheatable clue right there. Yep. You know, you that's can what gave the, it away to me. Okay, okay. 
that and there's only one coach. Two of the head coaches I have played for have won a national have won national championships. One has won a Super Bowl. And uh, I am the active leader in fumbles return for touchdowns. He has three, and that's the active leader. He's tied with a few others. Last five years have averaged over six years and 45 tackles a season. Good, but I don't think great. And my college team, while I was there, finished in the top 10 all three of his years there during his entire career. Currently a free agent. It is Jadavian Clowney. So the number one draft pick overall is the one that turned you, Jeff? And the fact that Pete Carroll's the only active coach that's won a Super Bowl and a national championship. That's true. Yep. That's that's true. So there it is. Jadavian Clowney. Yeah, you're right, John. South Carolina, USC. That's all you know. Prep, prep Stanford. <laughs> Maybe Notre, Notre Dame. Stanford, nothing, though, post, like, 1972. So, essentially, the Plunkett years. Let's just right. be honest. Essentially, yeah, years. let's be honest. Uh, Notre Dame. Uh, maybe Michigan in the Harbaugh years because it's the connection. Uh, but I have done some other college football clues for you that have nothing to do with anything that I you that, have. Are, that is my purview in college football, and you've gotten it right away. Because I've given you clues that are too easy. I will tell you that they played in the Orange Bowl or the Liberty Bowl, and you'll know exactly the college. And it's like, what? I'm pretty good at that stuff. Yeah, Capital One Bowl. They played in the Capital One Bowl and the Gator Bowl. You know, you would know, and they played a Big Ten team. You would know, you know immediately that it was a SEC team that finished second or third overall. Wouldn't well, depending on what the bowl, yeah, I generally I have a pretty good knowledge of which bowl games Matchups. are connected to which. Uh, yeah, it's my thing. College football is my thing. All right, there it is. So, Any, anything else, boys? This was fun. Uh, yeah, actually, I want you brought up Harbaugh, and we'll we'll talk about this more on the uh, on the next show. But since we're running late anyway, Harbaugh mentioned in that he has no problem playing uh, college games without fans, and some other programs uh, are opposed to that, and. Um, Someone on television slash radio opining that that's because Michigan doesn't really have a home field advantage. As big as the big house is, it's not a home field advantage field, and it hurts teams like Ohio State, Wisconsin, and some schools that really do have home field advantages more. Is it that that people are pushing back against it, or are they pushing back because they need some sort of revenue stream? They, they ticket are. sales. There, there is that as well. But, but the argument was somebody saying, "Wow, Harbaugh, and he's got the largest stadium." And it's like, well, you know, but really, the big house isn't necessarily a home field advantage for him. So, of course, he, on pure football terms, might think, "Wow, I'd rather go in and play Ohio State in the horseshoe with you know sixty people on the sidelines versus all of those folks in the stands." Well, there you go. And he knows his team and he knows, you know, they have not beaten them. And perhaps part of that is the the environment that they've been in. Now, granted, a couple of those, you know, he's been there, what, two years now? I mean, I'm four years or five. Uh, I think this will this might be his fifth year. Yeah, I think 15 was his first. So, um, yeah, actually, he's done five. This will be the sixth be six year. OK, so, yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting. What, but I just thought it was funny. He came out. Well, he was one of, the, one of the first coaches to come out and say, yeah, I don't have any problem with that. And then if you look at, if you go inside and you go, well, there may be a football reason he doesn't have as big a problem with that as some other people. So is the biggest uh, home field advantage in college football before we before we leave um, a night game at LSU? I, well, I always thought that that might be it. 
uh, it, there you that's certainly a good one to make an argument for. If the biggest home field advantages in college football, and I think we've mentioned most of them, certainly uh, Alabama has a great one. But again, they've had really, really great teams, and they've been equally as dominant on the road, really, in in places like LSU generally. Um, but I think there is something about night game at LSU that uh, is incredibly intimidating. Sure. All right. There you go, folks. That does it. Another hour and a half show in the books. Episode 23 for Jeff Taylor. John Pelkey, I'm Mark Furr. You've been listening to After Further Review. Stay safe, folks, and good luck. <laughs>